Today's episode of The Advocast is a recording of an event that we held on April 27, 2022, on the global fight for LGBTIQ rights. We are sharing this episode in recognition of the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia, which is May 17th. The International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia was created in 2004 to draw attention to the violence and discrimination experienced by lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people, and all other people with diverse sexual orientations, gender identities or expressions, and sex characteristics. The date of May 17th was specifically chosen to commemorate the World Health Organization's decision in 1990 to declassify homosexuality as a mental disorder. May 17th is now celebrated in more than 130 countries, including 37 where same-sex acts are illegal. Thousands of initiatives, big and small, are reported throughout the planet. One of the advocates for human rights priority areas of focus is LGBTIQ rights, both in the United States and abroad. We work with asylum seekers fleeing violence on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, and sex characteristics. We research and document violence and discrimination experienced by LGBTIQ people. And we engage in international and regional advocacy in support of equality for LGBTIQ people. Why don't we get started? Hello, thank you for being here. My name is Jennifer Prestholt, and I'm one of the deputy directors here at the Advocates for Human Rights. I also direct our international justice program. Welcome to everyone to our fundraiser today and our celebration of the global fight for LGBTIQ rights. It's so great to be here with all of you virtually. You will hear today about some of the ways that the Advocates is working to protect LGBTIQ rights. As one of our priority areas of work at the Advocates, the Advocates works across all of our programs to uphold the rights of LGBTIQ people and others who are experiencing violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, or sex characteristics. Today, we'll be talking about that work, and you'll hear more about how we help LGBTIQ migrants who are fleeing persecution find safety in the United States, how we empower our LGBTIQ clients to share their lived experiences by participating in international advocacy at the United Nations, and how we partner with LGBTIQ human rights defenders throughout the world to promote equality in their countries. With that, it is my very great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Nathan Madsen. Nathan is a staff attorney with the International Justice Program. And before he arrived uh, to, at the Advocates, Nathan received his PhD in anthropology at New York University, where he researched human rights activism among LGBTIQ organizations in Hong Kong. Welcome, Nathan. Um, before we start, I want to briefly talk about the terminology and specifically the acronym LGBTIQ+. Um, significant portions of the United Nations are currently using the acronyms LGBTI and SOGI, which stand for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex, and sexual orientation and gender identity, respectively. These acronyms, however, don't recognize the other identities that fall under the queer and transgender umbrellas, such as pansexuals, asexuals, gender non-binary people, etc. Um, unfortunately, many of these communities who have been excluded by the acronym LGBTI and SOGI 
or SOGI, um, have a long history of exclusion, both from outside the queer and trans community and from within. So that is why we at The Advocates use LGBTIQ+, <clears throat> to be as inclusive as possible of all people within the queer and trans community. We are also in the process of updating our website to better reflect this more inclusive language. Our first speaker today is Julia Valero, paralegal and intake coordinator with The Advocates Refugee and Immigrant Program. Prior to joining the Advocates, Julia worked closely with families, adults, and children in detention in Texas by providing legal services as well as advocacy regarding mistreatment, inadequate medical care, and other human rights issues inherent to the U.S. immigration system. She'll be talking about some of the human rights abuses at, um, that LGBTIQ people face and what drives them to seek asylum, as well as the specific issues that transgender, non-binary, and queer people experience when it comes to migration. Thank you, Nathan. Um, and thank you all. It's great to be with you today. So I just want to start off by saying I feel lucky to work with the Advocates as an organization that engages uh, the queer community and the trans and non-binary communities uh, who are seeking asylum, who are you know, doing activism in the diaspora or in their countries of origin and in a range of other capacities. My team, the Refugee and Immigrant Program, works closely with uh, queer and trans communities who are seeking asylum and other forms of relief from deportation. And as a sort of natural part of that process, we discuss what experiences cause people to migrate in the first place. It's no secret that across the world, queer, trans, and non-binary people are targeted simply for being who they are. People are subjected to torture, sexual violence, physical and psychological abuse, imprisonment, and ostracization from their communities and families and more. Even more so if an individual lives at an intersection of targeted identities, such as being Black and or Indigenous, as well as queer, trans, and or non-binary. Like many other bases for asylum, uh, queer, trans, and non-binary asylum seekers are also fleeing persecution that is rooted in colonization. Indigenous understandings of gender and sexuality extend beyond the rigid norms imposed by European colonizers. The anti-transness and anti-queerness of today is largely rooted in Euro-American colonization, forced assimilation into Christianity as a part of the process of cultural genocide, and the imposition of a gender binary and normative forms of sexuality. As is unfortunately common for anyone with a targeted identity going through the immigration system, the U.S. government's manner of processing people often echoes or reifies the very persecution that people are fleeing. The right to seek asylum is enumerated under U.S. and international law. Despite this, migrants arriving at the U.S. southern border are often barred entry via Title 42, the Remain in Mexico policy, and metering. All of these policies leave people essentially stranded in Mexican border towns for weeks, months, and sometimes even years. Cartels, well aware of this limbo and the lack of access to protection, target people, especially migrants, for labor, sex, and organ trafficking, among other things. This is only more likely if somebody has an additional targeted identity, like being queer, trans, or non-binary. Upon crossing the border, people are often forced through yeleras and perreras, known as iceboxes and dog pounds in Spanish, due to the freezer-like forced air and the cage-like structures within these immigration prisons. The conditions of these places can also mirror imprisonment that migrants experienced as a part of their persecution. Detention, whether at the border or in the interior of the U.S., can be deadly, as seen in the continued calls for justice for Roxana Hernandez, a trans woman who died while in immigration custody in 2018 after reportedly being denied requested medical care. Detained trans people are regularly misgendered and incarcerated along populations that match their sex assigned at birth rather than their gender. 
abuse is widespread in detention in general, including towards queer, trans, and NB migrants. Access to gender-affirming medical care, though required by the detention standards, is also almost non-existent. This is the welcome that the U.S. gives to queer, trans, and non-binary asylum seekers and immigrants. Then, if someone is lucky enough to make it past these barriers, many unfortunately also face homophobia and transphobia from the officers and judges deciding their cases. People are expected to be able to sort of fluidly explain uh, their sexuality or their gender when they may have been abused for this identity their entire life, or they may have suppressed thinking about this identity as a part of their survival. Asylum adjudication by its very sort of nature in the law is either inquisitorial or adversarial. In either case, this means that a government officer essentially interrogates asylum seekers about the most intimate and potentially dramatic, traumatic excuse me, details of their life, especially so given that many queer, trans, and non-binary asylum seekers are also survivors of sexual violence. Navigating queerness and transness can be a complex and ongoing process, especially when you've been socialized if you're talking about it. This is only compounded when your life depends upon proving both that you are queer and or trans and that that identity, excuse me, marks you for persecution. Because for asylum seekers, deportation could mean a death sentence. Furthermore, your queerness or your transness um, also has to fit the government officer's understanding of what it means to be queer or trans. And any sort of deviation from this definition could mean that your case is rejected. I'm reminded of former clients who struggled to come out to their attorneys, let alone coming out to an adversarial officer or facing cross-examination from an immigration and customs enforcement attorney. I'm reminded also of past clients who were told that they weren't really being targeted for their sexuality because they're bisexual and thus they weren't really queer. The implication being that because someone is bisexual, they can avoid persecution by choosing to only date people that give the impression that they are in a heterosexual partnership, even though this is utterly divorced from the reality that once somebody is seen as queer in an anti-queer community, they're not safe. I'm reminded in all of this of just countless ways that the immigration system tries to keep putting queer, trans, and non-binary people into boxes of how they should perform their queerness and transness. Being queer, trans, and envy by its very nature defies boxes and binaries. And so it's undeniable that queer, trans, and non-binary people face many barriers on their journey to perceived safety in the US. At the same time though, there continue to be serious violations of the human rights of queer, trans, and non-binary people within the United States. Uh, as we've continued to see, state legislatures are restricting how sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression can be taught about in public schools. They're passing laws that prohibit trans athletes from competing, and they refuse to investigate instances of hate crimes against the LGBT plus community. 2021 was also the deadliest year on record for trans people in the United States. Even when people survive the US immigration system, they might not survive the United States itself. Despite all of this, the queer, trans, and non-binary communities have long been on the forefront of human rights issues. I'm reminded of the inspiring fight that we've seen from the queer migrant community, such as drag queens protesting the border wall in Brownsville, Texas in 2019. We wouldn't have pride parades too if it were not for the Stonewall riots and the bravery of individuals like Marsha P. Johnson, Silvia Rivera, and Stormé de la Vie. Groups like the Black Trans Queer Migrant Liberation Project and Familia Trans Queer Liberation Movement continue to make inspiring strides for migrant justice and the queer trans and non-binary communities. We have come so far and yet we still have so far to go. To quote the Transgender Law Center, we are not free until Black trans women are free. 
If migrant justice does not also push for Black trans liberation, it is not truly fighting for migrant liberation. Migrant members of the queer, trans, and non-binary communities have long been fighting for justice and liberation for themselves and the migrant community in general. Everyone else just has to join in. Thank you. Welcome. We're here today with Harry Etier and Simon Wesa, both of whom are asylum clients of the Advocates for Human Rights, but who have also been involved in international justice advocacy at the United Nations and in other aspects of the work that we do at um, the Advocates for Human Rights. So welcome, Harry and Simon. Thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, I know that both of you um, came to Minnesota and applied for asylum, but then after you had started your application for asylum, you decided that you wanted to volunteer with the Advocates for Human Rights. Can you explain why you wanted to get involved and why you do continue to volunteer with the Advocates? Um, okay, I'll go first. Um, I think for me, it's just been a part of working because of the Advocates does a lot of work. Um, when it comes to human rights, um, not just in Minnesota, but just in general. And because of the background that I have had, um, volunteering and working in spaces where um, human rights um, fights and struggles are also very immensely valuable. And so for me, it was very important that I was a part of that process when I was reached out to because of, you know, it, it there are times when you feel like you're not doing enough <laughs> when you could be doing so much more in helping for the acceptance and the protection of people whose rights have, have been trampled on. And so it was a, it was a good opportunity to still be here and still be involved somewhat in the, in the fight for the rights of, you know, people like me who are wherever they are in the world and lending my, you know, sort of knowledge and lived experience to whatever project that is being worked on. So for me, it is, it's been a very fulfilling process and journey. And I know that I will not have been able to go through this entire process without volunteering in itself. Thank you. Simon, what, what drew you to the advocates? What about, what about us really drew you in, in terms of wanting to volunteer? Yeah, so uh, before I came to the United States, I was, an advocate for human rights, specifically LGBT rights. So when I moved to the United States and found out uh, the advocates for human rights during my um, asylum applications, I found that advocates was doing work related to almost what I was doing back home. So that's how I picked interest because I found it as another platform for me to continue the same kind of work I was doing back home. And, you know, in the global north, a lot of the times we're really focused on when it comes to LGBT, LGBTI plus rights on these big goals, like let's get same-sex marriage or let's get a comprehensive anti-discrimination legislation passed. And those are those are important. And those are important to a lot of LGBTI plus individuals. But a lot of the times 
there are these smaller, more achievable goals that advocates can focus on or should focus on. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. What is some of the things that you've seen in your work, either in your home countries or in the United States, that are smaller, more achievable goals that we also need to be paying attention to when it comes to LGBTI plus uh, advocacy? Okay. Um... I think what is very important um, for me personally, I think that we need to come to a space where we are focusing a bit more on storytelling, right? Um, I, I, I don't say just as a media person, I feel like I feel like back home, there's a lot of mind shift. I mean, there's a mind shift, sorry, that, that needs to happen back home with the people who are in the, in the, in the society, right? The people make the government. Now, on the issue of you know LGBT rights and acceptance, um, we need to get the people to be more open, to be more accepting, to be more loving, to embrace their LGBT brothers, sisters, their LGBT colleagues, their LGBT parents, their LGBT children. We need to get the people to um, understand that this is not a, it's not an abnormality that LGBT folks are normal. You know, they have feelings, they're they're gonna, they deserve to be here as much as the heteros are here also, right? And so, but how do we get to that space? What do we need to do to get to that space? We need to change their hearts and minds. How do we change their hearts and minds? We need to start with storytelling. We need to, the media has to stop misrepresenting the community. Uh, we need to see much more balanced, nuanced representation of LGBT folks on the screen. And for me, I think that is, for me, I think that is a good place to start. Um, LGBT folks are like every other person, right? There's nothing special about someone who's LGBT. They're just like you and they're like me. We are people who deserve our human rights to be fulfilled, to be protected, to be respected. We are people who deserve to be here, to live, to walk, to, to live a decent life, to make money, to earn a living, right? I, maybe from that moment on, we can now start to see real change because the people, you know, are coming around. And when the people come around, they realize that these laws that we have don't favor us anymore. These laws are inhumane. These laws don't protect a group of people and they need to go. That's a very interesting question. But um, as uh, Harry said, the overall grassroots change should be from the bottom, which is mindset change. People should change their perspective on how they look at uh, LGBT people. Because this, unless we change the mindset of people, even if we pass whatever amount of legislation, it might not really provide the overall protection of uh, LGBT individuals. Because legislation alone might exist as words on the books, in the shelf, but with uh, less impact down, or it's not something you can easily implement. But nevertheless, nevertheless legislation also meaningful legislation can create impacts. LGBT rights are also human rights and should be protected. 
So I feel like it should be like very, it should be an overhaul of the whole systems, right from the grassroots mindset and uh, having uh, legislation, legis or passing laws that uh, uh, protect, fully protect individuals like us, not having clauses in constitutions that contradict other clauses in the same constitution, you know? So to me, that's how I would look at that kind of uh, point. Thank you. Yeah. You know, in a previous life before I joined the Advocates, I was an anthropologist of human rights and a legal anthropologist that focused on queer advocacy in Hong Kong. And when I was there, it was the same kinds of things. It was focusing on these sort of small moments of inflection that you could make a change, whether that was changing hearts and minds, which was a preoccupation of a lot of the advocates that I was working with to make sure that Hong Kongers and Chinese people more broadly, because there was a lot of movement from Taiwan and, uh, and China in Hong Kong as well, to, to think of LGBTI people not as different, right? The, that they weren't different, that they weren't less than, that they weren't some foreign influence, that they were Hong Kongers, just like everybody else. And that it didn't matter what their sexual orientation was, their gender identity or gender expression. None of that impacted the fact that they were Hong Kongers. They were part of the society and they deserved to be treated equally because they were part of that society. And so making that point and driving that point home started to change people's minds and not think of LGBTI human rights as special rights for a special group of people or um, that that LGBTI people were looking for something that heterosexual cisgender people were not getting. It was to be shifting the laws so that it wasn't just a matter of societal acceptance, but a legal acceptance. And I think, Simon, your point is is dead on that it is a matter of changing hearts and minds, but it is also a matter of changing the laws and it has to be both. Why is it important for organizations like the advocates to be involved? What is it about, you know, your experiences with the advocates? Why is that important for um, LGBTI rights advocacy around the world? There's a lot of context that's missing with organizations that are focused only in America, who engage with people that are just, um, whose primary focus is just the US, or all kind of US and Canada, or like, do you know what I'm saying? I feel like the, the beauty of an organization that does international advocacy is that they can, they understand the issues a bit, a bit more, you know, their minds are more open, right? And they can engage with people whether they are asylum seekers or activists back home on the ground who are doing work, they know how to engage with them in a way that is not disrespectful and is also very, it's, it's, it's in a way empowering for the people who are doing the work, the people who are there. And you don't feel like, they, don't, they, they, they walk with you without you giving up your power, right? You don't feel like you're powerless. You don't feel like you don't have a voice. Um, 
and some organizations may not have that intention, but that that's what happens, right? And so we need more organizations to come up that, you know, understand country context, engage with people on that level. Um, like I said before, if we are going to fight for a world that is just, that is equitable, that has equal access to for, for everybody, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity, we need to also have room for people who to have different experiences, who are not as privileged, who are Black, who are African, who are Asian, who are poor. Like you need to be able to have your organization be as open and as reaching on all fronts. And I think that's and I and I think that's what is lacking in many organizations. Um, and it, to no fault of theirs, right? Um, we come into situations with our privileges, but sometimes we need to be able to step back and, and reaccess. And so that's why the work that advocates does is very important because they understand these issues and they're able to engage in that manner. And it would only help if more organizations, we have more advocates. Advocates for human rights cannot do everything for everybody. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? They cannot, they, they are, you know, there is limited capacity that advocates can handle if we're being realistic. And so we need to have more advocates. We, we need more organizations to step up and be like advocates, you know, in helping to achieve, because when, when we achieve this thing that we want, everybody benefits from it, you know? And so we need more organizations to step up and start to, you know, be more open and understand more. And maybe advocates can even try to start um, recommending how they do their work to other organizations, you know, start to do, do maybe capacity building for other organizations, start to, you know, things that you have learned, right? Provide more resources for other organizations who are doing the same, maybe they are doing just maybe helping people with asylum or maybe they're providing legal aid or maybe they just do international advocacy. Well, whatever it is that they're doing, advocates can can step in and help build people to be more like them so that it's not just, so that the burden is not just on advocates for human rights in the whole of the midwest thank you well i want to thank harry Ike and simon moesa for sharing their experiences with us today as well as um their reminder about what we can do here in minnesota states across the world to fight for lgbti plus rights That was um, a really wonderful interview that I had had with uh, Harry and Simon uh, last week, who were unable to join us live today um, because of work schedules, but we were happy to have their participation um, in this event nonetheless. So now we are going to be hearing from Anusha Buya from the Eagles for Life Kenya. He is the executive director and this organization is based in Kisi, Kenya. Enosh has worked in LGBTIQ plus and sex work activism for 12 years, um, both in Kenya and across Africa. The Advocates and the Eagles for Life have collaborated for several years on international advocacy at the United Nations Human Rights Mechanisms and the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. Enosh, please uh, tell us a little bit about the Eagles for Life. Uh -huh. Thank you so much, uh, Nathan. 
Uh, let me take this opportunity to thank uh, uh, the Advocate for Human Rights for the great work and uh, partnership that we have been working with them uh, for the last uh, uh, three joint uh, uh, reports. So I'll briefly talk about Egos for Life, then I'll go straight to talk about um, uh, preparation of future allies, uh, where we engage with the higher learning institutions. So Egos for Life is a uh, uh, LGBTI uh, organization based in Kenya uh, uh, with a programs uh, designed to advocate for human rights, especially the rights of LGBTI persons. Um, we have been in existence since 2010, uh, and uh, during our work, we have been able to realize that LGBTI persons in Kenya continue to face doubting challenges uh, in their quest for the full realization of fundamental rights and freedoms. Uh, Egos for Life uh, vision is a just, uh, uh, a just and inclusive society for LGBTI persons. Uh, we do this one through uh, creating a just inclusive society for gender and sexual minority by empowering LGBTI persons to claim uh, for their rights, enhance uh, access to responsible services by engaging youth bearers on policies, stimulating dialogues with the general public to promote uh, tolerance and the respect uh, for diversity. So uh, we have four thematic uh, pillars that we we, we focus our programs. Uh, the number one pillar is our empowerment of LGBTI person. This is where we, we focus more of self-awareness, uh, uh, building knowledge uh, on LGBTI uh, rights, and also uh, focusing on our well-being. Uh, the pillar number two is our engagement with the movers and shakers. Uh, this is where we focus our programs to the duty bearers, who are the state actors. And much of uh, uh, work around this period is about uh, uh, developing a meaningful partnership with the duty bearers and also having other influential institutions. So when I talk about influential institutions, this is where we also engage with the higher learning institutions like uh, universities and the colleges. Uh, on the same, we, we also engage with the, uh, the county and national governments. Uh, to ensure that we analyze and also we analyze policies and uh, and advocate on the same. Uh, then uh, the pillar number three is a connection with the general population. So for us, when we are talking about the general uh, population, we are talking about uh, religious leaders, cultural leaders, and opinion leaders. So this is uh, the population that have uh, an influence uh, uh, based on their, the, the, like the cultural leaders, the custodian of culture, the religious leaders are custodian of um, religious, religion be, uh, religious beliefs. And then the last one is about institutional strengthening. That's where we look internally. How do we strengthen our capacity to ensure that we deliver the mandates? Uh, moving forward, uh, I'll talk about briefly some of the achievements that we have been able to do since uh, uh, 2010. Eagles for Life have been able, managed to, uh, to actually um, to reach out to 480 LGBTI individuals who have been able to attend uh, therapy sessions that we have. I talked about the pillar number one that looking at the self-awareness uh, and the well-being. Then we have also managed to have 112 LGBTI participating in faith wellness uh, sessions. 
So we have a program that uh, we call it a faith engagement that uh, targets LGBTI and LGBTI of faith and uh, religious leaders. Uh, then we have also managed to train 265 LGBTI uh, on human rights and safety, safety and security. So on the same, we have a, a violence response system. Uh, this is where we have been able to train 25 paralegals. And uh, currently on the same, we have been able to, uh, in 2021, we documented 432 violence cases. And uh, currently we have uh, resolved 112 and uh, the rest are ongoing uh, with the process. Uh, in court, uh, some of them are in uh, police stations and some are then courts uh, for judicial process. Um, on the same note, we have been also reached out uh, to 12, uh, 1,556 uh, 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 general population. That's where we talk about when I talk to those numbers, we have reached out to cultural leaders, opinion leaders, and, uh, and uh, religious leaders. So, um, and also as well as we have uh, a cohort of religious leaders who are uh, in the opening uh, dialogues in their face spaces uh, from uh, Anglican Seventh Day Pentecostal churches that are actually separate, we call them uh, outreaches that uh, they're conducting in their faith spaces. So I'll uh, move straight to the, the preparation of uh, uh, future lead uh, allies, so stalker leaders. So when we talk about future allies, one of the things why we are doing this one is because we, we have discovered that uh, failure of the healthcare duty bearers to provide service for LGBTI persons, uh, it's because of the culture and the religion beliefs and also this one also, uh, uh, they were not um, able to uh, debunk all they were not able to, to go through uh, the myths and the conception that they, they had uh, during uh, uh, the early stages. So uh, as you are aware, Kenya is one of the African countries that are uh, uh, still holding into the, uh, the progressive culture. Uh, religious and the legal perspective that uh, confine the perpetuate stigma and discrimination against LGBTI persons. Uh, on the same, um, we there's a lot of work that has been done for uh, focusing the duty bearers, but we have not been able to focus to higher learning institution uh, preparations of these uh, uh, young professionals in, who are in, uh, in a vocational formation. So we, we realize that it is important to tap to this opportunity of engaging the youths and engaging these youths at a higher learning institution to tap in and also sensitize them uh, they, so that they can be able to even develop interest in, uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in the issues of uh, social, uh, uh, the issues of uh, social uh, con contemporary issues in the society. So, and also the another thing that we, the reason why we decided to focus on the higher institution is because uh, I know most of us, we also, for those who are not aware, uh, we petitioned the government to repeal section 162 that uh, talks about the canon knowledge uh, that criminalizes uh, LGBTI persons in Kenya. One of the things that came out uh, from the ruling that we received at a high court, it was about uh, lack of enough research on LGBTI issues 
that could have been able to inform the judiciary, uh, the judges, uh, to inform uh, a better or a favorable uh, ruling to, uh, uh, to repeal section 162 and 165. Then uh, at the same time, we looked at the universities in Kenya, they have a bigger say or they have a bigger uh, picture of shaping the, the community mindset. So that's why we used like, we've, if we can be able to engage with the higher learning institutions, we can be able to also now influence the community members, we can influence the different community uh, of the society individuals through the university. And also at the same time, we, uh, we currently we have the, uh, looking from the, the instances, cases that we documented in, uh, in previous years from, 20, uh, from 2018, we have realized that most of these cases are happening at a higher learning institution. So that's important. We also looked at it is important to engage with the faculties, uh, uh, to sensitize them, and also having these uh, programs targeting higher learning institution to reduce uh, violence in learning institution. And also this will be enabled to, to have even uh, having an enabling environment for individuals to come out uh, while they're in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, when they're in university. So what we do with the higher learning institution, we, we provide opportunities for students uh, uh, to interrogate the early messages they have received on gender and sexuality. So this one can be able to, to actually enable them to start having open, open minds and also to start be having uh, factual information around the LGBTI uh, so that they can be able to, to uh, start now having uh, uh, informed opinion and informed the uh, 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 perceptions towards LGBTI person. Then also, this also uh, opens uh, the uh, opportunities for students to start uh, developing interests in social research and uh, around gender and sexuality in contemporary society. Uh, then the last one is also having uh, uh, engaging with the faculty members. This one now enables. Uh, to create uh, uh, a platform where LGBTI who are in this in, in these institutions to be able to uh, talk and also open up their if there is any issue to the faculty teams. Uh, then we are doing this one in different approaches. We have uh, uh, approaches that we are using. We use uh, dialogues with the students uh, and also we involve the faculty teams. Uh, we conduct moot courts and uh, moot courts competitions, uh, debate competition, festival competition. Uh, then also working on the research and some of the research information that we, the paperwork that um, research papers we have seen from students, it has really, really helped in terms of developing the county uh, policies and the, some of the bills that are, are still on the on the pipeline. And then uh, through this one, we we also we conduct what we call human rights talks. This is where we we invite uh, uh, different uh, uh, expertise who comes in and talks of uh, uh, human rights um, specific areas that are discrimination, violence, prevention. So uh, we we do it much also to to this so that we can be able to open up the mind of. Uh, uh, young professionals who are in uh, professional formation. Thank you so much, Enosh. Um, we are uh, really happy with the partnership that we have with the Eagles for Life Kenya, and we've worked with them for quite a number of years. <clears throat> and many
thank you also to Nathan and Julia and to Enosh and to everybody who's been involved in today's program. I really appreciate um, all of the insights provided. And I'm sure that everyone who has participated uh, um, agrees with me on that. I'm really thankful to be able to do this work um, and to stand in partnership with our uh, partners here in the US and around the world. And um, I'm so thankful for everyone that is that is making um, making this work possible. So with that, I'll say thanks again and have a wonderful day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Advocast. The video of the entire event, The Global Fight for LGBTIQ Rights, is available on our YouTube channel. Please see our website, www.theadvocatesforhumanrights.org, for a closer look at the work we do on LGBTIQ rights. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and please join us in recognizing the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, and Transphobia this May 17th.